This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 14. Welcome to the Sunshine State. On and on and on we go. Good times roll and then moved on. Was long ago and far away. Another time, another day. Gainesville was a big town. Gainesville. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Ah, Florida. Exploding Boy played a lot in Florida back in the late 90s. We spent so much time there that it started to feel like a second home to me. I would eventually go on to make my home in Gainesville, Florida, starting in the early 2000s, and I stayed there for 13 years prior to moving to Nashville. In the spirit of Florida, I present to you a story involving an alligator. Back in my early Nashville days around 2014 or so, I received a phone call early on a Sunday morning from my friend Chris Nix. Hey man, want to help me and Chuck Wicks move his alligator? Um, sure. Cool, I'll be over to pick you up in half an hour. Chuck, an avid hunter, had killed an alligator some years earlier and had it taxidermied. In his words, it was one of his most prized possessions. Chuck was in the process of moving out of his apartment to another one across town and needed help transporting the taxidermied carcass of the ex-alligator in question. When we arrived at Chuck's apartment, I was surprised to see that this thing was at least 15 feet long and really, really heavy. It took up most of the floor of the apartment. It was also missing one of its front legs. I wasn't sure if the missing limb was something that happened pre- or post-mortem, but either way, this thing was going to take a lot of elbow grease to get it from point A to point B. It took all three of us, Chris, Chuck, and I, a considerable amount of effort to lug the gator out of the apartment and then to get it up into a blanket in the bed of Chuck's pickup truck. Chuck also had to lower the tailgate in order to make space for the tail, which curved around and stuck out several feet from the back of the vehicle. I rode with Chuck in the cab, and Chris rode in the bed of the truck with the gator as we made our way through the back streets to Chuck's new apartment in the Midtown area of Nashville. Needless to say, we got some pretty crazy looks from people as we drove by them. It's not every day that you see a pickup truck with an alligator tail sticking out of it, even in the South. 
The good news was that Chuck's old apartment was on the first floor, which made moving the gator out much easier. The bad news was that his new place was on the 11th floor of a high-rise apartment building. Since there was no way in hell we were going to lug this thing up 11 flights of stairs, this meant we'd have to figure out a way to somehow take the elevator. We got the gator out of the truck bed and into the lobby of the building. When the elevator arrived, we took a look inside and realized that if we put it in vertically, tail first, that it would just fit. Chuck was completely paranoid about breaking or damaging this thing, so he sat cross-legged on the floor of the elevator and rested the snout of the gator in his lap. Chris grabbed and braced the midsection, and I held up the tail. The elevator doors closed, and up we went. At one point, the elevator stopped at a floor, and the doors opened up to a group of people wanting to get on. Imagine their reactions seeing three grown men all struggling to hold a 15-foot stuffed alligator upside down. It was pretty funny. And they obviously got the next elevator. We finally got to the 11th floor and carried the gator down a long hallway and to its new home, covering a huge swath of the floor at Chuck's new apartment. A very memorable moment, to be sure. One, Key West. Key West, Florida, of all places, became a touring hub for us in the late 1990s. We would do residencies of two weeks at a time down there at a club called Dirty Harry's. One particular year, we ended up going down there four separate times, which, if my math is correct, was a full eight weeks spent in Key West. I remember some of the locals there actually thinking we were locals because we were there so much. We even spent Thanksgiving down there that year, a memorable Thanksgiving dinner with just the band guys. We splurged and spent some band fund cash on a very nice, fresh seafood dinner, spared no expense. I remember feeling a tinge of sadness being away from my family, but the food and the atmosphere took the edge off just a little bit. Dirty Harry's was part of a complex of establishments all owned by the same people. At the sidewalk level on the right-hand side, there was a little pizza and beer place called Angelina's Pizza. Across the walkway to the left, there was a bar called the Tree Bar, which was a tiny bar built around a real tree. And once you walked past those two places, off to the left was a strip club called the Red Garter. The main administrative office was across the courtyard from that, and upstairs to the front of the complex was a dance club called Rick's. All the way at the back of this little enclave was Dirty Harry's, which featured a small stage, PA and lights, and a small bar. The club housed every traveling band that made their way through to play there in two little dingy rooms upstairs, directly from the Red Garter Strip Club. Each room had two bunk beds and a small bathroom with a sink, toilet, and a small stand-up shower. And all the windows were completely blacked out. Our ritual back in those days when we would pull into Key West was to go to Walmart and stock up on supplies as we would be in town for two weeks and wouldn't really be taking the van out to drive anywhere. We just walked everywhere. One of the most important items we'd get there were two bug bomb cans to set off in each of the band rooms to kill any unwanted guests that might have made their way in. There would always be roaches and the occasional spider. And I told you how I feel about spiders. We'd set the bug bombs off, take a walk around the area a little bit, load in our gear, do a sound check, park the van and trailer, 
and by the time all of that was done, the rooms would be safe to occupy. We'd go around and clean up whatever insects didn't survive the apocalypse, and we were good to go for at least a while. We would play about four hours each night, sometimes longer. I could count on at least three good nights vocally until my higher range and my falsetto would pretty much disappear completely. I wasn't singing properly back then, I wasn't getting proper rest, I definitely wasn't hydrating, and I was consuming at least a half gallon of liquor, beer, and shots each night, so it's no surprise that I was having vocal issues. If I remember correctly, we would go on around 9 p.m. each night. We'd do an hour set and play 9 to 10, take a half hour break, and then do our second set from 10.30 to 11.30, another half hour break, then a midnight to 1 a.m. set, and then, depending on the crowd, we'd either shut it down early or we'd just keep playing till 2 a.m. It was absolutely brutal. After the set, we'd leave most of our large gear right on stage. We'd carry guitars, mics, and other small odds and ends up to the band rooms for overnight storage, and then make our way down the street and around the corner to a 24-hour restaurant cafe called The Green Iguana. One of the late-night managers who was also a server there was a guy named Lenny, who was originally from Philly. We became fast friends with him, and he'd always sneak us after-hours beers. As if we ever needed to drink more at that point. These would make their way to us in large styrofoam cups, so no one could tell what they were. And it was always Rolling Rock, because that's the only beer they had on tap. And it was also Lenny's favorite beer. He'd always ask us when we'd walk in, Round of coffees, guys? Yeah, man. Extra large coffees. We would stay out until 4 a.m. or later on most nights. I recall a few times actually seeing the sun come up as we made our way back to the band rooms. We would sleep off our stupor well into the afternoon the next day. We'd wake up around 2 or 3, grab a slice or two of pizza at Angelina's at the front of the complex, which were only a buck each for us because we were technically employees, and we'd start our day. One afternoon, I made my way down for a slice of pizza, mildly hungover and bleary-eyed, and when I walked into Angelina's, I ran smack into Academy Award-winning actor Cuba Gooding Jr. and a group of his friends who were clearly already in party mode for the day. As it turns out, he was there shooting the movie A Murder of Crows, which came out in 1998. I'm not sure if this practice is still in place in Key West, but when we were there, we were informed that the locals had a sort of secret handshake at all the local establishments that served beer on tap. All you would have to do is go into any of these places and ask for a number nine, and they'd pour you a free small cup of beer from the tap, no questions asked, and never any charge. Cuba Gooding and his friends were all indulging in a round of number nines when I walked in that afternoon. I was still just mildly drunk enough, and when I walked in and realized it was him, I exclaimed loudly, Holy shit! Cuba Gooding Jr., I love you! This got him and his whole group laughing, and he said, Hey man, thanks! You want to do a number nine with us? Why, yes. Yes, I would. So, we all got a round of number nines and drank them down quickly, which resulted in a loud party cheer of, immediately afterward. I shook his hand and thanked him and went back up to the band room to recount this crazy story to the other guys. 
On another occasion during spring break time, the whole island would just go completely off, as you can imagine. Every night, right after our first set, they would cover all of our equipment with large sheets of clear plastic, and they'd wheel out a giant beer tub of ice water and an empty pitcher and hold a wet t-shirt contest right on stage. These things always inevitably turned into no-shirt contests, as all the girls would try to one-up each other and rile up the crowd to win the cash prizes each night. This would go on every night for weeks at a time. Speaking of no shirts, the Red Garter Strip Club, which was directly beneath our band rooms, would spring into action at roughly 7 p.m. each night. And we would always know that this meant it was nearly time for us to start getting ready to do our show downstairs. We'd hear the dance music and the announcer downstairs clear as day introducing the girls. I've never really been a big strip club guy, thankfully, but I will confess, as a red-blooded male of barely 25 years old at the time, I definitely went into the place for a pre-show drink on more than one occasion back then and took in some of the scenery. We all did. We used to keep extra solo cups on stage behind each band member. Tons of people would buy us shots of Jägermeister back then. And I mean, tons. If it ever got to a point where any of us felt like we couldn't take another shot, these solo cups were an escape hatch of sorts, so that we could either pretend to take the shot and then just pour it into the solo cup instead, or actually drink the shot and then spit it out into the solo cups. We also proudly traveled with our own beer funnel, which held two beers. It was mounted in the back of the van along with the lighting trusses and the fishing poles. Aside from bringing it on stage and funneling beer ourselves, we would also bring the odd audience member on stage to funnel a beer or two as well as part of our show. It was pandering at the highest level, but the crowd always loved it. My sister Julia and a friend of hers made it down during one of our spring break runs in Key West and stayed with us in the band rooms for a long weekend. She was witness to several of these crazy spring break party nights there. I'll never forget my conversation with her on the last morning of the weekend as we packed up our gear preparing to leave, and she and her friend also got ready to go home. She said, So this is your life, huh, Mikey? Last night was crazy. I counted ten shots apiece you each took before you started pouring them into the solo cups. Yeah, I know. Just. Whatever you do, don't tell mom. Two, Club La Vila. Panama City, Florida was another of our big touring hubs and at the time, another big spring break destination. We would often play a six-night residency in Panama City at a place called Club La Vila. Four one-hour sets with four one-hour breaks in between each set for the DJ to spin dance music throughout the huge venue. There was no way to gain any kind of momentum set-wise. After one hour, we'd just be getting warmed up, only to lose it during the hour break, and then we'd struggle to warm up all over again. And this would go on all night long. The last set of each night was particularly grueling. Club La Vila's slogan, Party with Thousands was born in 1995 because the parties there soon became the biggest in the nation, 
with nightly attendance of several thousand people during the height of the season. La Vila boasted our favorite band house, second maybe only to the one in Jackson, Mississippi at a club called The Dock, which might have only been slightly nicer. And that's not saying a lot. Even though the band house in Panama City was just a shitty little duplex that wasn't exactly maintained well, it allowed each of the band members to have his own room, which was a small amount of rare privacy. And we all relished it. There was a TV with cable, which also made all the difference back then. Remember, this was way before cell phones. There was also a small kitchen, which meant we wouldn't have to always eat fast food or bar food. We were always hungry for any little way to make a place feel like home, however we could. I always traveled with two guitars back then, a main instrument and a backup, just in case of string breakage or any other problem. Jim, as I recall, usually only brought one guitar. He rarely, if ever, broke strings. And the thinking was that if he did break a string, the band could always continue playing while he changed it out, or he could use my backup guitar. He also had enough other shit to worry about running sound for us from on stage every night. My guitars always came with me everywhere. If something else got stolen, most of it was easily replaceable with something of greater or equal value. Guitars, however, are much more personal items and are not as easily replaced. Each one is different, and each has its own personality. My way of thinking was that if someone wanted to try and steal my guitars, they'd have to kill me first. I slept with them in whatever room I was in, always. Jim wasn't always as careful, and I'm not sure why. He was a single guy at the time and was much more interested in finding women to talk to after the show. And none of us blamed him. We always left all of our gear set up and ready to go at La Vila and just took guitars with us back to the band house, seeing as how we had six nights of playing to do there. One particular night, Jim decided for no real reason other than convenience and maybe just a bit of overindulgence to just leave his guitar at the club. We were always assured by management that things would be locked up and safe for the night, and we never really had any issues. I believe it was a Saturday night at the end of our residency. Our plan was to arrive at the club early the next afternoon to pack up and load out our gear and make our way down to Key West to start a two-week residency down there that Monday night. Much to our shock, we arrived at La Vila the next day to find that it had been broken into. And along with some microphones and a few other small things, Jim's guitar had been stolen. His main guitar at the time was his prized possession. It was a custom color salmon pink Fender Stratocaster. While I would proudly rock a guitar that looked just like that now, back then... We all just thought it was ugly as sin. But it suited Jim's flamboyant personality really well, and he loved it. He had a cheaper backup Strat that was the same custom color back home, but he didn't bring that one out all that much, if ever. Needless to say, Jim was devastated. Completely leveled. And we all felt really bad for him. The police were called and we filed a report, although the cops told us there wasn't really much that they could do. They advised us to call the local pawn shops in the area as well to tell them to be on the lookout for our gear, but their hands were essentially tied. 
We soldiered onto Key West and stopped at a music shop along the way to buy some spare microphones and a guitar tuner or two to replace what had been taken. We also made a phone call to my girlfriend Kelly and her sister at our house in Virginia and had them pack up and bring another of Jim's guitars to FedEx to essentially overnight it down to Key West so that we could pick it up on the way there and so that he would have something to play during our upcoming two-week stay. Fast forward at least six months or maybe more. We were pulling back into Panama City for another six-day run there on a Monday night. Live music at La Vila typically started on a Tuesday night and ran through Saturday. There was a little dive bar and restaurant at the corner of the little neighborhood where the La Vila band house was located. It was probably less than four blocks away. Jim had made plans with one of his female friends to grab dinner and drinks and to go and check out some live music at this little place. The rest of us, Joel, Jason, and myself, had settled in with some dinner and a movie on cable at the house. Jim hadn't been gone for even an hour when the band house phone rang. I answered it, and it was Jim on the other end of the line. Dude, you're not going to believe this shit. So I'm here at the corner bar, and we just ordered drinks and sat down. And get this. The dude on stage is playing my fucking guitar. Wait, what guitar? My stolen pink Strat, dude. We called the cops. Get the other guys, get in the van, and get your asses down here. Oh. Also, throw my other guitar in the van and bring it with you. Jim, as luck would have it, had the serial number of his stolen guitar written down. Also, as luck would have it, he had brought along his matching cheaper salmon pink Strat on this particular run. When I told Jay and Joel what was happening, they sprang to action, and we were all out the door and at the corner bar in minutes flat. When we pulled up, we found the place swarming with cops. There were at least six police cars out front with all their lights going. Jim, along with the cops, confronted the guy on stage who swore up and down that he bought the guitar from someone he didn't know. Jim produced the serial number from his wallet and also referenced the police report we had filed months previously for this exact guitar. Even though the cops didn't need any further proof, we then produced the matching hideous salmon pink guitar from out of our van. As soon as they saw it, they all laughed and said, Yep, that's definitely your guitar. I'm not sure what happened to the unlucky guy playing music that night or whether charges were pressed or not, but he gladly surrendered the instrument over to Jim without incident, and we were all thankful, happy, and really relieved that he got his baby back. What are the odds against that happening? Astronomical, I'm guessing. We all had a celebratory drink immediately afterwards at the bar. None of our other stolen gear was ever recovered. In 2018, Hurricane Michael, of all names, caused Club La Vila to close indefinitely. As of 2022, it remained closed with no announced reopen date. Rumors started to circulate on social media claiming that the club would not be reopening and that it was planned to be demolished. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. 
Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.